This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our guest today on Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com, is Ken Wilbur. Uh, Ken is an American writer on transpersonal psychology and his own integral theory, a four-quadrant grid, which suggests the synthesis of all human knowledge and experience. Ken has a remarkable background that we could never cover in an introduction, but let's hope we can get into much of it today in our interview. Uh, thank you so very much, Ken, for taking the time to speak to us today. Well, it's a, a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking uh, with both of you. Great. Uh, Ken, uh, we're talking now in December of 2017 uh, for future listeners, um, and I'm really glad we got uh, got you before the end of the year because um, it came to my attention that this is the 40th anniversary of uh, the spectrum of consciousness. Yeah, how about that? Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but uh, usually we ask people about uh, sort of their creation story, uh, and that book launched you into the public eye and was a major factor in the um, creation or the development of transpersonal psychology. Take us back uh, briefly, give us, for, especially for people who are not familiar with you, um, what the impetus for, for that work was, which sort of set the the uh, tone for the rest of your... Sure. Well, this was... Uh, I was a classic uh, boomer. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1967, and that was uh, the famous Summer of Love in San Francisco. And things were obviously changing quite dramatically. We were coming out of sort of the Eisenhower 50s, the um, Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best shows and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and all of a sudden, we're getting invaded, um, on the one hand, by an extraordinary influx of Eastern traditions. And, uh, and then on the other, essentially a psychedelic revolution. And for whatever reason, um, it, it, it's, it, it's a long story, but I never really sort of uh, found any, any uh, thrill in psychedelics. So the psychedelic revolution kind of, uh, I witnessed it, but I didn't really participate in it. Um, but it was, in a sense, doing the same thing that the Eastern traditions were doing. Uh, it was opening people to an experience of different states of consciousness that they'd really never, ever experienced before. And when it came to religion, this really had a stunning uh, impact. Um, we had uh, an influx of Taoism and Vedanta and Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism uh, and Sufism and uh, just on and on. And most of us were used to a form of religion that was sort of very common in the West and it was basically um, uh, just a series of mythic stories and uh, the, particularly the people that took it seriously, like fundamentalist Christians, felt that the Bible was the word of God. Every, every word in the Bible was absolutely and literally true, uh, and so on. And so you would become a good Christian if you simply believed all of the mythic stories. 
So if you believe Moses really did part the Red Sea and Christ really was born of a biological virgin and Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt and sort of on and on and on. If you just sort of believed all of that stuff, then when you died, you'd go to heaven and sit on the right hand of of this uh, elderly, gray-haired gentleman and his one and only son. And uh, most of us have just kind of stopped finding that Mm -hmm. interesting. And then all of a sudden, you have things like Zen Buddhism. All of a sudden, you have these things uh, called stuff like Satori or Enlightenment or Awakening. And that was not what we had got in Sunday school. That was clearly just an entirely different type of uh, something called spirituality. It didn't even really seem to be in the same ballpark as what we were used to. And so a lot of people got very, very, very excited um, and very turned on by uh, the the potentials that these religions, that these Mm -hmm. spiritual systems talked about. And it made an enormous impact, including on people in academia. Uh, I mean, Heidegger is reported to have said, uh, if I understand Suzuki correctly, D.T. Suzuki being one of the uh, best and most widely known writers on Zen Buddhism, Heidegger said, if I understand Suzuki correctly, this is what I've been trying to say in all my writings. Mm. Um, the historian Lynn White said the translation of Suzuki's studies in Zen Buddhism into English will historically rank with a translation of the Latin Bible into English. And it was that kind of impact. It, it, mm-hmm. just, it was stunning. And a lot of us started uh, actually trying to practice these things. And so uh, there were just a handful of Zen masters in the country, but there were uh, lots of other Eastern traditions that were also pouring in. And of course, the Beatles rather famously made Transcendental Meditation and the Maharishi Mahashoki kind of a big thing uh, when they signed up to that. And we had a bunch of schools of psychology uh, in the West, but... None of them really dealt with stuff like this. Uh, Almost the only way that they could deal with an experience of Satori, which is an experience where instead of just identifying with your conventional self uh, wrapped up in this skin-encapsulated body, your identity actually expands and you feel that you are directly and immediately one with the ground of all being and you're also one with the entire universe, you're one with absolutely everything that's arising. And this is your true self. And you can directly and immediately realize that. And, and that realization uh, is what the aim of spirituality mm-hmm. is all about. It's discovering spirit alive. And as you're in your own case, as a direct, immediate awareness, not something you just go to Sunday school and nod your head and read the myths and then die. Um, so this just sort of started changing everything. And a gentleman named Abraham Maslow, uh, in looking over the various schools of psychology that the West had to offer, he had already helped create something that was called humanistic psychology. And that was um, a psychology that just dealt with certain uh, realities of a human being that weren't being dealt with by traditional Anglo-Saxon psychologies, the two most prevalent of which at the time 
were Freudian psychoanalysis and behaviorism. And so Maslow started something he called humanistic psychology, and this got really a lot of truly great, brilliant um, philosophical psychologists into the game. And there were um, uh, existential theories were brought in, and a lot of continental philosophy was brought in, and it really opened up the whole... Uh, notion of, of human psychology and what it meant and what human awareness and experience meant. And it was clearly a much richer game than merely uh, psychoanalysis or, or merely behaviorism. And then as these new um, types of awareness, as these Eastern traditions started coming in, and uh, to some degree, uh, clearly the psychedelic revolution as well, but humanistic wasn't expanded enough to really fully deal with these even bigger states of consciousness. And so Maslow then created what simply came to be called the fourth force, which is transpersonal psychology. And that sort of included everything that humanistic psychology included, plus it included all of these enlightenment experiences, these awakening experiences, the capacity to actually experience the truly profound and deepest and highest um, uh, dimensions of existence, that humans actually had that as a capacity, was, was just striking. Mm-hmm. And so fourth, fourth psychology got started, and I had, at about that time, I had uh, left high school, uh, went to medical school at, at uh, Duke University, <laughs> but I was already really kind of bored with, with, with the whole uh, curricula that, that I could get, um, no matter what it was. Uh, and so at first I thought, well, it's because it's not creative enough. So I left Duke and I went to uh, graduate school in biochemistry. And a lot of the great biochemistry schools are in the Midwest because the government gives them money to help learn how to make the cows grow bigger. Uh, so I ended up at uh, University of, of Nebraska uh, at Lincoln and working on um, my doctorate. And just a few years into that, um, I had already started practicing Zen uh, meditation. I was reading things like Krishnamurti and Alan Watts and, and you know, uh, D.T. Suzuki, of course, and this whole um, alternative range of possibilities. That's what really excited me. So I wasn't really interested in, in biochemistry or doing the research that I was uh, meant to be doing at that time. And so I would spend, oh, four to six hours a day just reading voluminously mm-hmm. anything I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I started getting into, okay, what is Satori? What is the ground of all being? What does this actually mean? Uh, I ended up just sort of getting into a, kind of a, a whole study of human potentials mm-hmm. and human possibility. And so I was reading everything. I was reading continental philosophers. I was reading Eastern philosophers. Mm-hmm. I was reading Western psychologists, mm-hmm. sociologists, on and on and on. And one thing started to really uh, bother me and uh, became, in an almost cliched sense of the, of the word, it became a kind of koan for me. 
And that was, I was doing things like gestalt therapy. Uh, I had even, because I wanted to know about it, uh, had intentionally signed up to do some psychoanalysis. I was practicing Zen. Uh, I had uh, signed up for TM. I, I, you know, I was doing all of these different um, approaches. And what became confusing was, just to give a quick example, uh, in psychoanalysis, you were told that you'd get better if you strengthened your ego. And in Zen, you were told you'd get better if you got rid of your ego. <laughs> so all of a sudden, um, we had some real problems here because I was practicing all these things and I knew there was something right about all of them. And so uh, the, the question became, I, I really had kind of a profound turnaround. The question that I started asking was not which one of these is right, because that would mean all the others are wrong. But the question was, how is the universe constructed in such a way that all of these can be partially right? Mm -hmm. Because I knew they all were, and, and yet they all were deeply disagreed with mm -hmm. each other. Uh, Ken, Ken can, I ask a, can uh, I interrupt and ask just what? one quick question? Yeah. During this period of time, yeah. we're the same age, by the way. When you graduated from high school, you went to Duke, then you transferred out, and you were experimenting with all these different techniques and, 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 and uh, teachings and analysis. Was there at any point uh, or points when you had a very deep spiritual experience, a transcendental experience, something that brought you out of the realm of just studying about it that gave you the, 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 the uh, understanding the, that it was possible to actually have these uh, experiences that you were reading about? Well, yes, just actually just a few years into this, um, a few years into uh, when I transferred to uh, University of Nebraska, uh, and I was uh, 21, 22, something like that. Um, one of the things that we had done, because I was looking around for all this kind of stuff, uh, and I was practicing gestalt therapy there and so on, but we also, um, there was a Zen master who was one of the main successors to Suzuki Roshi in San Francisco. And this is Suzuki Roshi, not DT Suzuki. Mm -hmm. But Suzuki Roshi was in his own way as well known. Um, and he had caused just a huge sensation in San Francisco. Um, people were just really drawn to him. And he was clearly talking um, about this awakened awareness. Mm -hmm. And so it caused uh, kind of a big sensation. And one of his main uh, successors was a, a guy by the name of Katagiri Roshi. And Katagiri sort of took this role of like what I imagine the old time Western preachers were, where they used to sort of, you know, they're, they're in their little um, horse and, and, and carriage, and they would just sort of go from one town to another to another to another, you know, during a year. They'd maybe stop at 12 or 13 places, and they would, you know, marry people that needed to be married or baptize people that needed to be baptized or help bury people and all that. And they just sort of go from town, you know, from town to town. And that's what Katagiri Roshi did, sort of throughout the Midwest. He'd go to a dozen or more uh, towns, and he would give um, uh, sessions. He, he, he would give a five- or seven-day um, meditation uh, um, practice sessions. <clears throat> and I'd gotten into uh, those uh, fairly early on. And about the third time that I was doing it, because I'd also been practicing Zen on my own for uh, quite some time, 
uh, and I contacted probably five or six Zen masters around the country uh, by then. I even been assigned to koans by mail, which I think don't think it ever happened. Mm. Um, but uh, on the third one that I did with Katakuri Roshi, had a really really strong Ken show or, or sort of preliminary uh, satori, so I knew that there was uh, truth to, to what that was about, and I also became. Um, you know, convinced that this really did open up a genuine reality that certainly as far as I had experienced up to that point in my life um, was the most real of the most real of the most real experience mm-hmm. I had ever had. And that's not uncommon when people have some of these um, uh, altered state experiences and they experience a sort of ground of all being or they experience a oneness with with divine or oneness of spirit, uh, it carries an uh, overwhelming sense of certainty, an overwhelming sense that, that this is, in fact, what's ultimately real, and this is, in fact, who and what you ultimately are. Um, and so I had that, and I was just continuing, because it also was pretty clear that that experience as profound and as real as it is, in many cases, is just in Zen. It's considered, you know, the beginning of your practice, not the end of it. So now, this is where real life starts after you've had this experience, because there are ways to deepen it and expand it, and so on. Uh, so that's what I was interested in. And as I was doing that, I was looking at, you know, upwards of around. If you sort of took all of the self improvement things. Oh that humans had available mm-hmm. to them, whether it was psychotherapy or whether it was various forms of religion and spirituality, um, or whether it was just sort of philosophical understanding, whatever it was. Um, it turned out that there were about six or so uh, major schools of what I'm just broadly calling self-improvement um, that included everything from a transactional analysis to Zen Buddhism to Gestalt therapy to psychoanalysis and so on and so on. <laughs> and this is what I was convinced that all of them had something important to say. And what I was trying to figure out was what was the structure of the universe that would allow all of them to actually fit in and, and have something you know, very important, if, if true but partial. And so that's what I was, um, in addition to sort of practicing all these things, including uh, um, increasing my, my um, Zen practice, mm-hmm. uh, I was really trying to figure out how all these things fit together. That just wouldn't let go. It's like I stepped into some, some sort of cognitive framework mm-hmm. that was um, higher in a certain sense than, than anything I'd really been introduced to uh, up to that point. And so, right as I was finishing um, my requirements for uh, a master's degree in in the ongoing doctoral um, program, um, I just had this sort of aha experience, and I had this uh, image of how all sort of six or so of these major schools of self-improvement could fit together. So I decided, and it really seemed to work, and it was very, um, very moving for me and, 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 and carried a great deal of meaning. And so I decided that, even though I'd never really written much or had much talent for writing, I decided it was something I had to write down. 
And so I went to my professors in biochemistry, <laughs> and I explained that I was going to drop out because I was going to, quote, write a book on the soul and consciousness and stuff. <laughs> and that look of horror in their face was just alarming. Um, but uh, they you know, did everything they could to talk me out of it, but I walked away anyway. Um, and I was living with a woman at the time. We, we, uh, we got married that same year. Um, and I told her about it, and very graciously she said, well, okay, you know, that's fine with me. And so I left graduate school, and because I had to pay half of the rent and half the phone and, and all of that, um, I went out and got a job washing dishes. Um, and, and I ended up actually washing dishes for close to 10 years. And during those 10 years, I wrote 10 books. Wow. But the first one that I wrote <laughs> was indeed called The Spectrum of Consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was uh, a pretty substantial book, and it, and it, it showed uh, an overall scheme where um, all of these major schools of self-improvement could all fit together in a coherent fashion. And what each of them, and, and, and the simple uh, metaphor was that there wasn't just one consciousness, and then you put different objects in front of it, but that there was there were different levels uh, of consciousness, much like a rainbow, hence the title of the book, The Spectrum uh, of Consciousness, and that each of these approaches were coming from a different color or a different band or a different level in the, in the spectrum. And they were true when they were coming from their own level, but they weren't when, when, when dealing with other levels. And these were increasingly larger and larger and larger and larger. So the, the area or coverage that each of them dealt with kept getting kind of bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so it went all the way from like the smallest little self-sense you could have, a narrowed persona um, repressing the shadow and not even a full ego, just a little narrow, uh, inaccurate ego or persona. Uh, and then you could expand that to a full ego, um, but then the ego was split from the body, so you could, ex you could unite the, the ego and the body to form um, a whole bodied um, mind-body union, and you could experience that. And then you could actually go from feeling your identity with just your whole body to uniting that with the whole environment and therefore feeling a complete sort of ultimate unity consciousness. Uh, and, and, and the whole thing uh, worked well. And it, each of them could generate uh, shadow elements. Uh, and I included a, a lot of um, research on all of them. And so I, I, um, I wrote that book when I was 23. Um, and it came out, and it really was a bit of a, a kind of a, a an overnight sensation, and particularly in the school of uh, transpersonal psychology itself, uh, I became kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, you and became known as the Einstein of consciousness. That's what it was. <laughs> right. uh, and so people started coming by to visit me, and uh, and it was great, uh, and everybody said the same thing. They'd knock on the door and say, oh, hi, I'm here to talk to your dad, <laughs> because I just didn't look, you know, like somebody that would write that kind of, that kind how, of thing. Was way how did young. academics in the, uh, academics react to you at that time? 
Were they open? Well, it was weird. Um, we took um, virtually every review that was written about it, and frankly, they were just embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was compared. Um, Wilbur's written the most sensible book on consciousness since William James. Uh, Wilbur will go down history with Freud. Uh, Wilbur's a uh, Hegel of consciousness. Yes, he's the Einstein of consciousness. I mean, it was just that kind of stuff, uh-huh. almost uniformly. Uh-huh. Um, and it was only down the years that I got sort of um, better known and, and more known that um, uh, people decided that it was time to uh, start uh, taking shots at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would come across uh, my own fair share uh, of criticism. Yeah. Um, but by and large, it's, uh, it still continued to be very, uh, very positive reception uh, to yeah. what I'm doing. Uh, Ken, um Along the years, um, as I've read your work and been exposed to new uh, ideas of yours, there have been three or four occasions at least where something that I've been pondering about the spiritual scene or my own spiritual life and observations, um, I would read something of yours and I'd say, ah, now I understand it. He, yeah. He's framed that really well. And I know dozens of people for whom you've uh, provided that service, so to speak. And um, one of the earliest ones that uh, really uh, hit me um, as a, a flash of insight was your pre-trans fallacy. Right. And right. I, I'd like you to, if you can summarize, summarize it briefly, because in my observation, it's uh, still a very important concept. Um, right. And I'd right. like to hear what you have to say about that. Right. Well, this is all uh, coming um, at the time when really what most of us Westerners knew um, about you know things like the Eastern traditions and things like higher states of consciousness and particularly things like ultimate non-dual unity consciousness and stuff like that, we really didn't have um, a lot of information available to us. Uh, and for most of us, anyway, I'm sure there were obscure, you know, professors here or there that that, that knew much much more than we did. Um, but for most of us, we really didn't get that that the West had a, a, a fairly profound mystical tradition all of its own, but that it had largely sort of died out um, as the Catholic Church itself became a little just sort of a little bit more wary and more wary and more wary of, of mystical experience. Um, Christianity itself started out as a riot of mystical experience. I mean, for the first uh, three or four centuries, that's just all it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point was, as St. Paul put it, let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. And people were having, you know, Christ consciousness experiences all over the place. Um, and there's even, of course, the the whole um, notion that there was a Gnostic school of Christianity, and it was, you know, devoted to to those types of those types of states. But as it went on and on, the church just really started having more and more trouble with with um, the people that claimed uh, mystical experiences. Uh, number one, because they had a tendency to claim that they were one with God. And the church had already decided that only one, per- one person was one with God. And he had already gotten kicked upstairs and was no longer uh, you know, available for personal consultation. 
Um, and so they didn't like that. And then there was the whole notion that nobody comes to salvation except by way of Mother Church. And the nasty thing about mystical experiences is they go straight from God to you. Mm-hmm. And they have a tendency to, you know, they don't check with the church. And so I mean, it's just like um, the reason that oil companies don't like solar energy is that solar energy has the nasty habit of going from the sun straight to the user, and it bypasses the oil companies. <laughs> uh, so, so more and more and more, it just um, mysticism just kind of got dismissed, and Christianity be- became much more this kind of legalistic notion. Um, it used to be that if you um, wanted um, to uh, to be a Christian, you you would go around. You'd look for a Christian teacher. Uh, you'd find that teacher. You'd study with them for a year or two or three. And the 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 person who would look for is what was called sanctus or sanctified. In other words, they were awakened. They were like they had Christ consciousness operating in them. And you'd go and find somebody that was doing that, and then you'd study with them until that Christ consciousness would awaken in you. And so. That was how um, that was how it it, it, it tended to go. Um, by around the third or fourth century, that started to get replaced by things like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. So, if you wanted to be a Christian at that time, like you could go into a preacher in the morning and say, "I want to be a Christian," and they say, "Okay, um, you know, here's a list of things you have to believe. Uh, read this list, and if you believe it, sign on the bottom." And you say, "Okay, I, I believe it. And I accept Jesus as my personal Savior." And then you sign on the bottom, and that's it. You're a Christian. You're, you're saved. Um, so, so all of a sudden, the whole notion of, of awakening or enlightenment kind of kind of went more and more to the wayside. And by the time we got to you know the 1960s. Um, the only Christianity we knew is what you'd sort of get in Sunday school. And that was just nothing but one myth after another myth mm-hmm. after another myth. Um, and all the uh, studies of the stages of spiritual intelligence that people can, can go through, like James Fowler's, um, it, the mythic stage, which Fowler calls mythic literal, is, is at a pretty low stage of spiritual intelligence. Out of six or so major stages of development, it's stage three. And yet that's all you were getting out of Christianity is a really low stage of growing up, parading as a, as a major event of waking up. And, and it was nothing of the sort. So as we started into this, we really didn't have a background of you know mystical traditions. We, we never really practiced mystical states. So it was kind of confusing. And one of the first things that, that people tended to notice and would tend to say is that, well, these mystical states, these states of unity consciousness, these higher states, they're all beyond reason. They're all beyond rationality. They're transrational. And they're transpersonal. That's how transpersonal psychology got its name. And so we kind of started making this sort of major dichotomy, which is there's, there's sort of rationality and the ego and reason and all of that on one side, and those are all bad. And then on the other side, there's transrational, there's transpersonal, there's spiritual, there's uh, unity consciousness, and those are all good. And so we, the more we kept doing that, 
the more we started including things that were actually uh, infantile or even childish, but they did lack rationality. Mm-hmm. And so if they lacked rationality, then by the simple dichotomy we had, they had to therefore be divine consciousness. They had to be unity consciousness. They, it, it, it had to be some sort of great transrational uh, experience you were having. And so even, you know, like six-month-old infants um, or um, original tribes 500,000 years ago, all of these were enlightened. They were all existing in a divine unity, oneness and awareness and so on. And it, it just, it really started to get sillier and sillier and sillier, uh, the number of things we were doing. And it almost started to take on kind of a regressive uh, tendency because people were just doing anything they could to get rid of thinking, to get rid of rationality, and that was really opening them up to stages of development that weren't transrational, they were actually pre-rational. Mm-hmm. And once I sort of saw that, then an enormous number of things fell into place, and I did sit down and write a, a, a fairly long uh, essay called The Pre-Trans Fallacy. And all it pointed out is that in, in any developmental sequence, you can pick any sort of location, call it X, and there are stages that are pre-X, leading up to X, and then there are stages that are post-X or trans-X that move beyond X. And the thing about the pre-X and the trans-X is that they're both non-X. <laughs> So you can have, like in moral development, you go from pre-conventional to conventional to post-conventional. And both pre-conventional and post-conventional are non-conventional. And but so they're not the same. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> As a matter of fact, they're at opposite ends right. of the spectrum. And so once you start to see that, then you can start to go, okay, wait a minute. Um, I've been getting involved in things that are really just pre-rational, they're narcissistic, they're egocentric, they're infantile, and I'm calling that divine. Uh, so it was a disaster. And I mean, we had a staggering number of people that were really getting caught up in what were pre-rational, pre-personal, pre-conventional, pre-verbal states. And they were calling them trans-rational, trans-verbal, trans-conventional, trans-personal, and they were nothing of the sort. Mm-hmm. By the way, the, the confusion can go both ways. Mm-hmm. You can the the common one was we were mistaking transrational for pre-rational. So so we we were well we were elevating pre-rational to transrational status, and um, a, a tendency um, of that is in in certain Jungians, for example, that take certain just really quite childish myths. Um, but elevate those to some sort of spiritual uh, status. And I think there's some truth to the young end, but in some cases, they, it, it really does make that confusion. Mm-hmm. But then you can go the other way. And Freud made yeah. the opposite mistake. He mm-hmm. took all transrational stuff and reduced it to nothing but pre-rational. Mm-hmm. So his famous letter to Rilke, he said, no, I know you're having this oceanic experience and all that, but for me, that's the experience of a six-month-old child. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. exactly the stance Freud took in the future of an illusion. Right. So you can confuse it both ways. You can take pre and elevate it to trans, or you can take trans and reduce it to pre. But once you see that, you see that you have this whole spectrum 
that goes from pre-X to X to post-X or trans-X, and you need to include all of those without confusing any of them. And that really opened it up for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, Ken, can I, uh, I wanted to ask you, well, it be one last question for me, and then Phil, you could follow up in any way you like, sure. and, and that is, um, uh, at this point in your life, you've been amazingly prolific from a very early age, and you've produced a lot, written a lot. At this point in your life, do you want to write, where is your emphasis? Is it to write and, and, and uh, to do further uh, uh, commentary, uh, or is it more now, at this point in your life, to focus on developing more of your own inner or mystical experience? Well, uh, those two things, uh, strangely, um, have gone hand in hand mm -hmm. uh, almost from the beginning. Okay. Um, I mean, I was I was ultimately moved to really write this stuff um, because of that 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 um, that first early initial uh, Ken show or Satori experience mm -hmm. that I that I'd have the category, and as I continued to write on these things, I would I continued to meditate. Um, uh, almost always an hour or two a day and, and then often uh, a whole day uh, on the weekend and I do frequent uh, week-long and month-long retreats uh, and, and in a variety of ways, largely uh, Buddhism at first uh, probably about 15 years of Zen Buddhism and then about 15 years of Tibetan Buddhism but I'd also practice Vedanta and various forms of Christian uh, centering prayer and uh, various forms of Sufism and just sort of a whole kind of smorgasbord mm -hmm. but I was always doing that while I was uh, while I was writing and they've always kind of seemed seemed to go together and one of the things that started to happen um, as uh, time went on as I had more experiences as we all sort of started learning more about these things um, was that when we first started studying things like Satori, when we first started studying things like awakening uh, um, or enlightenment uh, experiences, we really felt, at least certainly those like in the transpersonal psychology movement, the initial belief was just, because this is, you know, this is, this is all so radically new and an experience of oneness with everything, it, just, it was just overwhelming. And we really felt that if you got a real profound satori that everything became fixed mm -hmm. that satori would do everything for you i mean it would get rid of neurosis it lifted the repression barrier it it integrated you know your psyche and it was even the thought was even it would succeed in life you know i mean if you wanted to be like a you know a great doctor, great lawyer, great CEO or something, get Satori and you're on your way. So we really, really felt that. I mean, so year after year after year, we kind of started noticing that even people that had had Satori, that there were other things that didn't really get much better about them. And so there, there became a very, very long process of starting to tease apart exactly what Satori would do for you and what it wouldn't do for you. And that meant that we had to start getting a more sophisticated view of the psyche. So what, how, how is it possible 
that you can have a profound Satori experience. So if that happens, and we uh, also assume, let's say, that human beings have upwards of a dozen multiple intelligences, then does having Satori make you expert in all 12 intelligences? Interesting. And, and it's pretty clear it didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you have musical intelligence. So, if you get Satori, do you then automatically become a concert pianist? No. As a matter of fact, it doesn't do anything, really, um, <laughs> to dramatically uh, show you how to play an instrument or excel at it or something like that. Uh, we have a mathematical intelligence. Does getting Satori automatically mean that you know how to do calculus? No, it doesn't. Not really. And so all of a sudden, we started kind of peeling off things that Satori wouldn't do. And at the time that that was happening, I was also taking that spectrum of consciousness uh, notion. And I was starting to expand that because one of the, um, one of the really big, um, I guess uh, you could call it discovery, um, was that um, even looking at something like the spectrum of consciousness, which seemed to cover everything, I mean, because it went from sort of the narrowest identity you could have, just a little bitty, you know, uh, persona, all the way to the biggest identity you could have, one with everything, one with the entire universe. And that seemed to cover, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, indeed, everything, uh, you know, the entire universe. But it turns out that you can actually look at something like a spectrum of consciousness through several different perspectives. And some of the most common, of course, are simply first-person, second-person, and third-person perspectives. And you can, these, these perspectives turn out to be uh, not just subjective uh, sort of um, ways of looking at things. They turn out to be actual ingredients of, of the structure of the world itself. And one of the reasons that, that we can uh, assume that is that the... Um, first, second, and third person perspectives um, are found, uh, there are words for those in in every major language uh, the world over. So as language was evolving, it it was actually running into realities that were first person, realities that were second person, realities that were third person. And so it was developing uh, perspectives that could account for those different realities. So first-person perspective is, is uh, said to be um, the person who's speaking. So those would be pronouns like I, me, mine, or plural is uh, we or us. And then second-person perspective is the person being spoken to. So that's a you or a thou. And plural, um, northerners say use, Y-O-U-S-E, and southerners say y'all. You are, but that second person plural, and then third person is a person or a thing being spoken about. So that's generally taken to mean an objective view of, of things. So we say science is a third person perspective on uh, various mm-hmm. realities. Mm-hmm. So you can take that first that that spectrum of consciousness, which is a spectrum of first person perspectives, and you can also understand that 
that all of those ingredients are going to have correlations in second-person dimension and in third-person dimension. And Ken, uh, if I if I can interrupt, because and, and we Phil, we do have, need to wrap it up in a in a few minutes. I know minutes we do. Yeah. I know that's why yeah. I have to do this. We'll we could talk forever. Three. Yeah. you'll have to come back on. Absolutely. But I wanted to just point out one thing that one of the implications of what you've just been talking about is what I was going to ask you next, but we don't have time, which is one of the great insights was why so many supposedly enlightened people were behaving badly. <laughs> exactly. And, right. and exactly. That, that was driving so many of us crazy, and you nailed it with these different lines of development right. that just because somebody is in an enlightened right. state of consciousness does not mean they are morally developed or psychologically Well, developed. exactly. Exactly. And so we started to talk about different things that, that can happen as a human being grows and develops, and we would call these things like showing up, growing up, right. waking up, and cleaning up. Right. And all of those are different. And what Satori does is it helps you wake up. It does not help you clean up or handle shadow material. It does not help you grow up or actually develop through those multiple intelligences. And it doesn't help you show up or actually discover all those other dimensions like first, second, third person. You don't find anything helping with showing up or growing up or cleaning up in any of the major traditions, the major paths of liberation around the world. And so all of a sudden, we have a much bigger kind of map of what's actually there in the human psyche. And so we've learned what can help with each of these various areas. And the things that help with growing up, the things that help with cleaning up, and the things that help with waking up are all very different. But if we want a complete sort of comprehensive approach to our own, quote, self-improvement. And we certainly want to cover all of those areas. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there are techniques and practices that work with all of those. We just have to put them all together. And, and we'll, that's never been done. So that's what makes it exciting. And that, that's, that's been your life's work. And right. we'll have to refer the listeners to uh, KenWilber.com. They can find out more. And we'll have to have you back on to... Uh, unfold some more of this we, we stuff. Could easily I have a do list an of questions series. we didn't yeah. get to. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. Be Fantastic. my pleasure.